So hello and welcome to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast, brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani. Today I'm very pleased to welcome Virginia Luis Fuentes to the podcast. Virginia is a professor of veterinary cardiology and is part of the cardiology service at the RVC's Queen Mother Hostel for Animals. So thanks very much for joining me today, Virginia. Thanks for asking me. You're welcome. <laughs> so, Virginia, today <laughs> I wanted to discuss a topic that I know you have a special interest in, and that is um, heart disease in domestic cats. So I'm not really planning on talking much about the approach to the clinical patient today. Um, what I'd like to do instead is to kind of discuss heart disease in cats in general terms, and then I'm hoping that once you've kind of got over today, we can get together again in the future and focus more on the clinical aspects of patient management. Um, so I hope that sounds okay. Sure, yeah. Um, so I guess the most obvious place to start is by asking if you can please tell us about which type of heart disease is more common in cats and also whether there are any differences in that respect to dogs. Sure. Well, well, cats overwhelmingly get myocardial disease, whether it's primary myocardial disease or secondary to other conditions like hypothyroidism or hypertension. And although dogs get myocardial disease, the most common heart disease they get is obviously degenerative valve disease. And um, degenerative valve disease is extremely rare in cats. So, um, When you say extremely rare... In your very long career, <laughs> um, what <Steady>. kind of, <laughs> like anecdotally, if you like, what kind of percentage are we talking about? Is that a really silly question? Well, when cats get degenerative valve disease, it's usually secondary to um, their myocardial disease. So, with cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they get dynamic outflow tract obstruction sometimes, and uh, the the contact damage, the mechanical damage done to the mitral valve can lead to degenerative changes, but um, it's not the same as in dogs where the pathology starts in the valve. So, um, so primary valvular disease is pretty rare. Unless it's yes. congenital valve disease, <clears throat> I don't think I've ever seen it, okay. and I'm right. not sure it's <laughs> been really reported. Um, and so I think we're going to use the word cardiomyopathy today. I'm okay um, with that. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of classifying um, feline cardiomyopathies, um, I guess from a non-cardiologist perspective, I've always been a little bit like this. This seems to be a lot of discussion and deliberation about how to classify feline cardiomyopathies. And some of them, some of the names seem more kind of functional, some may seem more anatomical. And I guess I wondered, is there a system that most people have kind of landed on using that or is it still open to quite a lot of discussion? The whole classification of cardiomyopathies is a mess, really. Okay. And um, it's not very well sorted out in humans. So there have been a series of classification systems for cardiomyopathies over the years for human myocardial disease. And every few years there's a new classification and uh, a new one came out last week um, okay. with varying degrees of complexity sometimes they're based on uh, functional and morphological features and I guess the older systems that we still tend to use in cats yeah. would, would follow that basis so most people will be familiar with the main types of cardiomyopathies uh, such as hypertrophic um, dilated restrictive 
and uh, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy is another primary cardiomyopathy. And then there are a load of terms for ones that don't quite fit, such as unclassified, for example. And that's, that's probably the system that's used by most cardiologists, whether veterinary or human. But uh, increasingly, there's a push in human cardiomyopathies to try and classify according to um, the genetic mutation that might be responsible for inherited cardiomyopathies and um, classifying them as familial or non-familial. And I think we, we suspect there's familial cardiomyopathies in both cats and dogs, but we haven't identified very many mutations, only two. Okay. Whereas in humans, they have 1,400, over 1,400 different mutations just for hypertrophic well, cardiomyopathy. And, um, I mean, we'll come on to one of the things I want to ask you about is screening cats. And <clears throat> one of the things I was going to ask you about was that genetic testing. Mm. So we'll come back and touch on that. Um, and when you were saying about primary and secondary cardiomyopathies, does the type, the classification type of the cardiomyopathy and whether it's primary or secondary, does that, does that matter? So can all types of cardiomyopathy be primary or secondary? That's a mess too. That's a mess really. as well. <laughs> so, um, it's a take-home message from today. It's a mess. It's very, very confusing. Okay. And I think and um, <laughs> the, the original use of the terms primary and secondary were uh, depending on whether the disease... Um, just originated in the heart muscle or whether the heart muscle was affected by systemic disease. That was how we used to term secondary cardiomyopathies. They changed the human classification to so that secondary cardiomyopathies were where the myocardium is affected as well as there being other systemic effects. So even even those terms are, are a little bit confusing to use. It's, it's more confusing than that, again, um, because we're starting to recognise that there's a lot of blurring between boundaries of the different yeah. traditional types of cardiomyopathies. So, for example, we now know that some individuals with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy may develop thinning of the left ventricular wall over time as you get myocyte death, and they may develop systolic dysfunction. So they can end up looking like a dilated cardiomyopathy phenotype, and that's sometimes called end-stage hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And it's also recognized that even where there are known mutations that cause cardiomyopathies, um, some of those mutations in both humans uh, and in laboratory animals can result in both a hypertrophic phenotype or a dilated yeah, phenotype so. <laughs> okay. or a hypertrophic or a restrictive <laughs> that, phenotype. I promise I'm not sorry I asked, but <laughs> I understand the So I, I guess the bottom line is I don't think we should be worried about putting a label on. <clears> I'm <throat> not sure it always makes a huge difference so to that, how that we manage them. Kind of the, the next question really, I guess, was <clears throat> that's all great, but from a therapeutic and or prognostic point of view, does it really matter what label a cardiomyopathy has or is it really much more about the individual patient and, and what they are doing? I mean, I think that it's definitely about the individual patient and what stage they're at. And I think there are features that can help us with prognosis. Okay. But which label they have 
doesn't necessarily help us. Okay. And one suspicion <clears throat> is that a lot of the restrictive cardiomyopathies, for example, are just hypertrophic cardiomyopathy cases that are very advanced or end stage. So in general, if somebody wants to give a cat a label of restrictive or unclassified or dilated, we know those are all advanced stages of cardiomyopathy. Okay, so, so an individual cat could have been given different labels at different times, depending uh, on the, the stage of where they were evaluated. Or even the person evaluating the person them. Evaluating. You know, this on Monday great. they could be <laughs> one cardiomyopathy, on Friday with a different person they might be another. So I think we should, we should not get That's bent out of shape trying to put a label on them. Fantastic. Um, <clears throat> and one thing I think I was really keen to discuss today is um, this whole kind of idea of subclinical cardiomyopathy. And I guess the first thing is whether that's a term that you, the use of which you acknowledge. And if it is, then could you please kind of define what we mean by, or clarify what we mean by subclinical? I mean, I think there's lots of different terms for cats that have cardiomyopathy, but are not showing any clinical signs. Subclinical is one, preclinical is another term that some people use. In um, humans, they might talk about asymptomatic um, hypertrophic okay. cardiomyopathy. So we know that many cats have myocardial disease, um, but the owner has no knowledge of it. The cat exhibits no signs of having problems. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's definitely a very common manifestation of cardiomyopathy. And do we have any... Um any reasonable kind of data in terms of what the likely prevalence of subclinical cardiomyopathy is in the kind of domestic cat population? And I guess that question needs to be extended to UK versus maybe other countries. So, yes, in increasingly we do have more and more evidence. And uh, a couple of studies in the US looking at um, cats belonging to vet school staff and students suggested the prevalence might be as high as 15% of apparently healthy cats. We've just completed a study of um, over 780 um, <coughs> shelter cats, cats in rehoming centres who were apparently healthy and found an identical prevalence. Around 15% of them um, were showing no clinical signs but had left ventricular hypertrophy on so echocardiography. On a, <clears throat> on a too much of a tangent, what, what did you, um, so how, how did you screen, well actually, and, and actually it's not a tangent because my next question was going to be, picture I'm a vet in practice and I'm presented with someone's pet cat and I want to know how do I screen or can I screen this cat for subclinical cardiomyopathy. So I guess my, what I wanted to ask was one of my options and that kind of leads into how did you screen these shelter cats for that problem. Well the, go the gold standard test Anti-mortem is uh, echocardiography okay. demonstrating um, for, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is far and away the most common type of cardiomyopathy we see in cats. So uh, particularly in the um, preclinical or subclinical cardiomyopathies, virtually all of them bar a few arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathies, will be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or okay. HCM. I'm going to call it HCM yes. from here on. <laughs> so um, for that, the diagnosis usually depends on identifying thicker left ventricular walls than normal. Okay. So uh, the main way 
is with echocardiography. But that's uh, to, to be able to obtain accurate measurements of the left ventricular wall, you have to have a fair degree of skill hmm. to be repeatable. Um, and the, the study that we carried out, it was um, actually all the scanning was done by um, Rosie Payne, uh, who was doing a PhD with me, and um, she echoed um, over 780 wow. cats um, in order to identify the prevalence. Now, that's something that is going to be challenging for general practitioners yeah. to acquire the skill in echocardiography to be able to identify subtle alterations in left ventricular wall thickness that's really difficult. And so I guess, <clears throat> well, let, let's, let's talk about whether there are any other things you can do to screen those cats, and then we'll come back on to one of the things was, you know, how do you make a decision to screen a cat? And I guess, obviously, the, what the, the pet's carer has to say about it is hugely important as well. But aside from echo, are there, any, are there any other things that one can do? So are there any, I guess, biomarkers that are of any use or...? Well, I think there's a couple of ways, and uh, what Rosie found in her study was that um, having a loud murmur was more likely to indicate a cat with HCM. Uh, it's more common in male cats. It's more common in older cats. Okay. Um, finding a gallop sound would uh, should increase your index of suspicion. So even on physical exam findings, there are some things that might alert you. And I think okay. most people uh, coming across a cat in their clinic that has a loud murmur, I'm sure the question would cross their minds as to whether that cat actually had cardiomyopathy or not. So that's one way of... And um, <clears throat> with that being very semantical, semantic, whatever the word is, when you say a loud murmur... Um, how loud? <laughs> the louder it is, the, the more <laughs> suspicious you should probably be. Um, Am normally, I going to open a can of worms as I start talking about grades of murmurs now? Or is not it really. Else that's been a bit. No, I think I think <laughs> cats with a grade five or grade six murmur. So if you can feel a palpable okay. thrill, okay. they don't have cardiomyopathy. Okay. They have congenital heart disease. Okay. So the really really loud murmurs <clears throat> are not likely to be cardiomyopathy. Um, we hear a lot of murmurs in cats, and for grade one, grade two murmurs, really soft, quiet, difficult to detect murmurs. Those may be HCM, they may be innocent murmurs, totally unassociated with any structural heart disease at all. So I guess the first thing, even though I said that loud murmurs are more likely to indicate cats with HCM, um, many, even of the loud murmurs, are actually completely innocent. <laughs> so um, the finding of a murmur doesn't mean a cat has a I problem. I can see why you're fascinated by heart disease <laughs> in cats. Is it cats' such heart a, disease um... is so interesting. Um, <laughs> but a challenge. And I think murmurs... Um, they're not a very specific indicator mm. of HCM, but if you've heard one, you probably need to consider following it up with further testing. So you're asking about other, other tests that mm. can be done to identify cats with cardiomyopathy. And I think the biomarkers, anti-pro-BNP and uh, troponin I, may be extremely useful tests. Okay. Um, but for... Mild, low-grade disease, 
they're not as helpful as for more severe disease. So they won't necessarily easily pick up cats with mild HCM, for example. And so um, <clears throat> the, for those cats, then echo by somebody with adequate expertise would be the way forward at, at that's, least. That's, pro- that's the only way we know yeah. uh, at right now of identifying those cats. You can consider um, chest radiographs, um, but those cats are not likely to have very much cardiomegaly. Yeah. So yeah. I think um, y- y- it's really difficult, whichever test you use, to identify the cats with mild disease. But one could argue, do you need to? Yeah. And I think what we're realising is that cats with mild disease are likely to have normal lifespans. So I don't think we need to sweat too much about the cats with just slight increase in wall thickness that only just qualify as HCM. I think a more important question in general practice is how to identify the cats at high risk for dying a cardiac death as a result of their myocardial disease. And, and that's a really important question, I think. Okay, and um, <clears throat> we, we sort of touched on it already, but um, in terms of breeds that are predisposed to HCM, um, I was interested to know whether there are any genetic tests available for those breeds, and I guess we've sort of touched on it already, but is there anything that one can send off to test a cat genetically for cardiomyopathy? So we only ha- we've only identified two mutations, um, despite the fact that 15% of even non-pedigree cats um, okay. have HCM, yeah. probably. We have two mutations compared to the 1,400 in human HCM. And uh, those mutations are both in the same gene. They're both in the myosin binding protein C gene, which is uh, a, a protein of the cardiac sarcomere. Uh, There are two different mutations in the same gene, one in Maine Coon cats and one in ragdolls. So in those two breeds only, there is a genetic test. But even for cats that are positive for the mutation, um, it's not inevitable that they will develop um, an HCM phenotype. So... Often breeders will use the genetic test as a means for deciding about making breeding decisions. But if you want to know about the prognosis of that individual cat, um, it's no substitute for an echo. Okay, and I guess if I turn the question around a bit and say of the proportion of kind of routine consults that the cardiology service here sees, how many of those would you say are here for kind of screening purposes, if you like, so event and practices uh, within discussion with their owner? decided they've heard a murmur, don't want to have the cat have an echo. Do you have any sense of how many of those we see? Well, I think there's lots of different reasons for screening. And I think um, it's only hardcore, anxious cat breeders that will, you know, come in and say, I want you to tell me if my cat has HCM. For most other situations, usually it will be um, the vet identifies something that makes them suspicious that a cat might have heart disease and then puts it to the owner. Do they want to find out why the cat has a murmur? And I think... Um, It's easy to get discouraged about encouraging owners to spend money and time having uh, a murmur worked up uh, only to find there's nothing wrong with the cat. 
But I think for a lot of owners, if, if they are told that your cat has a heart murmur, it could be anything from life-threatening heart disease to absolutely nothing at all and your cat is normal, yeah. there are many owners who would want to pay money to find out which of those options it is and would be very relieved to know there's actually nothing wrong with their cat. Yeah, because I guess one of, the things that, <clears throat> one of the things I wondered was how many murmurs are being labelled as innocent when they are not. I guess so, and, and we don't know the answer to that. But so, how many of these cats actually that have sort of said, "Yeah, your cat's got an innocent murmur," we'll just keep an eye on it. Is that an inappropriate thing to do to jump to that conclusion without having an echo? Or well, I think that the worry is that it's very difficult to identify the high risk cats yeah. from the low risk cats from the normal cats, <laughs> yeah. just just because there's a murmur present. So it's quite easy to say, "Well, it's not very loud murmur." seems all right at the moment, let's just keep an eye on things. And yeah. it depends how you're going to keep an eye on things because um, for some of those cats, the next time they'll come back in will be with aortic thromboembolism and then it's too late yeah. to do anything yeah. about it. So many of these cats will show no signs at all up until a life-threatening calamity like like aortic thromboembolism or development of acute pulmonary edema or sudden death. That's the other thing that can happen to these cats. Um, And many owners uh, presume when they come home and find their cat dead that's been hit by a car or they don't necessarily assume that their cat had heart disease that they didn't know about. I must must admit that, um, yeah... It wouldn't be the thing that I think a lot of us would go to as a first likely cause. I think, um, I think we're definitely underestimating the number yeah, of cats with sudden death as a result of, of HCM. Um, and in terms of cats that we see that are clinical for their heart disease, and um, do you have a kind of... Is it generally older cats? What's the kind of age range? Um, well, we can see cats die in cardiac deaths um, due to cardiomyopathy at any age. So we see cats under six months developing um, life-threatening congestive heart failure signs. We see young adults dying suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, The older they get, probably the more likely they are to start developing systolic dysfunction. They may be more likely to develop aortic thromboembolism as they Mm -hmm. get older. Um, And we found that the prevalence of uh, more severe uh, cardiomyopathy generally tends to increase as they get older. So many of these cats will have their cardiomyopathy for years and years, and there can be a slow progression in some of them so that they may not develop clinical signs with it until they are older. older, Whereas in in younger cats, um, probably the proportion of cats, say, with murmurs, that are innocent is probably greater in younger cats. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, something else that I just, I just wanted to clear up, to be honest, was the whole kind of taurine and cats and their hearts. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that there was a time when taurine deficiency-related dilated cardiomyopathy was much more common in cats, and then my understanding is that commercial diets had the amount of taurine in them increased and then the incidence of that problem decreased. Um, But I think we still see cats that are on diets that in theory contain enough levels of taurine and these cats still can go on and develop DCM. Um, So I guess the first thing I was asking really was, is that true? And if it is, 
Do we have any sense whether it's because those cats can't actually just utilize the taurine that's been made available to them, or is the DCM in those cats entirely non-related to taurine in any way, or do we not really know? Well, going back to your question earlier on classification of (laughs) cardiomyopathies, a dilated cardiomyopathy phenotype is seen across a whole range of species, and... Um, you can end up with a DCM phenotype as a result of lots of different types of myocardial insult. Mm. So it's an end-stage form of heart disease that can be caused by anything from chemotherapy to alcohol abuse to sustained tachycardias to genetic forms. So... um, it was a huge breakthrough in cats when Paul Pine published the association with taurine. And it wasn't that there were low levels of taurine in those diets. Actually, the pet food manufacturing process made that taurine unavailable. Oh, see. Okay. And okay. they changed the processes okay, so that it became more bioavailable. And since then, the proportion of cardiomyopathies that have a DCM phenotype in cats has plummeted. Okay. And it's actually a very rare uh, type of cardiomyopathy myopathy these days but when we check their plasma taurine levels they have normal plasma taurine levels so if you see dcm in a cat nowadays it's extremely unlikely to have anything to do with taurine and it falls in the same category as dcm that we see in other species where we don't really know the underlying cause but in people they're finding more and more that there's uh, a genetic component and i don't don't want to overcomplicate it but is there any sense that those cats, so their DCM is still related to taurine, it's just they can't utilise it. Is there a kind of mechanistic I think problem if, with the use of taurine? Am I just going off about this for no reason? If that was the case, I'd expect them to have low plasma taurine levels. Okay. Um, okay. Because ca- cats are, are different from dogs in that they can't synthesise it. But okay. if, if that was the case, we'd expect them to have low plasma levels. So I don't think it's a, a factor, okay. personally. So just DCM like any other individual and any other species might choose to develop okay awesome and um kind of the next thing i want to talk about sort of as to end the podcast today really was um again i'm not going to do i'm not going to talk about in a lot of detail was kind of arterial thromboembolism i think again it's something that you're very interested in and i know that at the interface between our services um (laughs) between ecc and cardiology we have a lot of discussion about cats with arterial thromboembolism um so again i'm hoping that we can come back and actually do a podcast on it at some point in the future. Um, but the bottom line is that we know that cardiomyopathy predisposes cats to arterial thromboembolism. And I guess, given what we've just been discussing, I kind of wanted to ask you two things, really. Um, the first thing is that we and other places kind of routinely prescribe antiplatelet agents such as clopidogrel and or aspirin um, for cats that we see with clinical heart disease. Um, and I guess the, the $6 million question really is, is there any actual evidence to suggest that using these agents in these clinical cats actually reduces their risk of suffering a, a thromboembolic complication? Because one of the things I, I always think about is obviously these cats are sometimes on multiple oral therapies and we're just adding another one or two antiplatelet agents and they're going to have sort of an impact on the ability of the carer to deliver those and on the carer's lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. So I guess the question is, do we know that this is making a difference or is it very much in a risk-benefit analysis we think that the potential benefit outweighs the risk, if you like, and so we're going to use them? Well, for the first time this, this summer, we obtained some evidence okay. that 
it is doing something. So um, Dan Hogan in Purdue, uh, who headed up the, the, the Fat Cat study comparing um, clopidogrel and aspirin in cats that had already had an episode of thromboembolism uh, and looking at the time to recurrence of thromboembolism or, or death due to um, a cardiac cause. Yeah found that uh, the time taken for recurrence of thromboembolism or a cardiac event was twice as long in the cats on clopidogrel compared to aspirin. Now, there was no um, placebo group because I I think ethically that would be very difficult to do nowadays. But we know that um, for cats who've already had an episode, clopidogrel is effective in lengthening the, the... period of time that they're free of clinical signs. So I think that's encouraging. It's not the same as saying that if we start cats on clopidogrel that have never had an episode of thromboembolism that it will help prevent it but it's certainly encouraging and I think that of all the possible disastrous sequelae of having cardiomyopathy, aortic thromboembolism is far and away the worst. It's nobody wants to see a cat go through that. Mm. So I think the risk-benefit ratio is, is very favourable for using clopidogrel. And um, so you, you think that <clears throat> we've reached a point, or we have been at a point, that actually it would just be ethically wrong to do a randomised controlled trial where you had placebo versus aspirin versus clopidogrel versus aspirin and clopidogrel. So withholding therapy in any of these cats would not be considered ethical nowadays. Well, I think we need to look at the risk factors, and I think we know a lot more about risk factors for which cats um, are at risk of having thromboembolism. And I talked earlier about high-risk cats versus low-risk cats. And I think whether you're talking about congestive failure or thromboembolism, one of the biggest risk factors is having a big left atrium doesn't matter what your left ventricle's doing, having a big left atrium is really, really important. So that's a risk factor we need to look for. And in our clinic, if you have a big left atrium, and, and particularly if you have a big left atrium that's not contracting very well, those cats, we feel, should be on some sort of antiplatelet treatment. So <clears throat> I, I would be reluctant to conduct a clinical study um, okay, whether, with cats whether like that that were not okay. receiving any... And um, <clears throat> what are we... We're using clopidogrel and aspirin now, or just clopidogrel? Um, nobody's done any work looking mm-hmm. at any additional benefit of adding aspirin on top of clopidogrel in cats. Okay. Um, I think, again, in the clinic for cats that have already had an episode or have a thrombus visible in the left atrium or spontaneous echo contrast, some of those cats will recommend go on clopidogrel and aspirin. The downside is that there could be a theoretical increased risk of of hemorrhage, but we haven't seen that Hmm. empirically. Um, So for cats we think are very, very high risk, yes, we sometimes put them on both, but without any evidence other than uh, there seems to be greater protective effect, uh, antithrombotic um, protection in humans, given both compared to just clopidogrel on its own. Um, and in those cats that we talked about before that um, might come for screening on the basis of a, a murmur that may or may not turn out to then be considered uh, innocent, um, 
or if you find a cat that has, so if you find one of those cats has kind of very mild HCM but is preclinical or subclinical, do we, um, I'm getting the sense the answer to this question already, but I'll ask it anyway, do we, would we routinely start those cases on antiplatelet therapy at that stage or is it a case of come back and see us again, we'll continue to monitor you? Is it a case of your left atrium starting to get a bit big, have some? or Yeah, where, where we, we would a... usually wait until there's left atrial enlargement, okay. clear left atrial enlargement. So for many of these cats, and, and possibly the majority of cats with cardiomyopathy will keep a normal size left atrium their whole lives and will remain free of any clinical signs. And it seems an unnecessary... Um, thing to do in terms of quality of life of cat and owner to say that you have to medicate that cat daily for the rest of its life. And what if, um, what if you're really in a circumstance where echoing that cat is just not an option for the owner and you're a vet in practice and you auscultate a cat and it has a, a soft grade one to two murmur, what do I do? I, th- I think the best approach would be to, if you've got an ultrasound machine in your practice, learn how to look at the left atrium. <laughs> Don't worry about the left ventricle. I'm not sure that, that, that we can just leave it like that, though. <laughs> if, you, if you haven't got the time and um, you know to practice obtaining left atrial views, then I think the next best thing is to consider biomarkers and probably uh, NT-pro-BMP would still be my top choice. Okay. And if there's a big jump in anti-pro BMP levels, then you're in a stronger position to try and persuade the owner to have an echo done. I'm not sure we're at the stage where we can base all our clinical decisions on biomarkers. I think an echo, it's more as a guide to which cats really need an echo and which and, um, don't. And so how often, I realise the nature of these questions, but how often would you be recommending one checks those biomarkers like every three months, six months, annually? Annually would be fine yeah. unless, unless it comes back as a 1,000. If you've, if you've got really, really yeah. high anti-pro BMP levels, then you, you probably should be persuading that owner to go for an echo. So I think it's, it's a reasonable initial screening test to decide if you really want to push an echo or not. Yeah. I think the other things that should push you into trying to persuade the owner to go for an echo would be presence of a gallop or arrhythmia because they also seem to be um, strongly associated with risk of a cardiac death. And so I, I, guess, I, I guess what I'm trying to do is just kind of tease out a, a, a way of approaching these cases if, if just echo is not an option sure. to you. And um, so I guess if you had one of these cats and it had a gallop, then starting clopidogrel would potentially make more sense. I think the other thing that's really important if you have, that I haven't mentioned yet, is going right back to the beginning talking about secondary cardiomyopathies and, and what is essential is that you identify those cardiomyopathies where the myocardium is affected by a systemic disease. So the things that need to be ruled out are um, hypothyroidism, hypertension, and anemia, yeah. because those all have very different treatments okay. that are needed. So whether you have access to good quality echo or not, those are those things, things that need to be ruled yeah. out and treated separately. If, uh, if you've ruled out those things and uh, you haven't got access to echo, then I think if you do anti-pro BMP and it's very high, 
then um, it's probably not going to do any harm to put them on clopidogrel, except some cats don't like the taste of it, <laughs> yeah. and they'll end up running away from you and yeah. hiding from you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because um, obviously we know what we would ideally like to happen with these cases, but the reality is that it's not the reality for all of them. And I guess I'm always kind of, I'm always trying to think of, well, what's the safest recommendations to be making for patients that can't necessarily get all the work up we would like them to have. You know? I, I still think for those <laughs> practices where there is an ultrasound machine... Just learn how to use it. Learn, not yet, just the left atrium. I think yeah. it's completely unrealistic to expect um, non-specialists to, to get good at ultrasounding the left ventricle. But I think because you can get immediate, really valuable information with an assessment of left atrial size... Um, that to me looks like where you should concentrate your efforts if you have access to it. If not, then biomarkers are. Okay. Are I mean, the whole um, the whole ultrasounding for left atrium. So, you know, when I did my residency six, seven years ago, whatever, and on the ECC service again, it wasn't something we were doing very much. And we were the use of ultrasound by emergency people has grown for other for other reasons. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it's only again been in relatively recent times that we've at least started to try and look at the heart. And, um, and so I guess I would second the idea that, that looking for left atrial size is not as difficult as people might think until they try. I think one of the benefits that we have here is that we've spent enough time watching you guys scan patients so that when I see a picture, I'm like, yeah, okay, that looks big to me, uh, without even measuring it. So it's almost subjectively. And I guess, I guess one of the things I think people struggle from is just a lack of enough exposure in a way. And, um, you know, but now we've got online access to tools there's a lot of ways of getting cpd and so on i think it is becoming increasingly and i i do spend a lot of time encouraging people at cpd and stuff to try and engage with their ultrasound machine and actually i recently did um, a course where there was about 25 people and about 22 of them put their hands up and said that they have an ultrasound machine and about 19 out of that 22 had nice relatively new portable ones it's because the big beast had kind of been replaced by this little laptop or something. Yeah. So I think, I mean, obviously it's fairly selective in terms of people that attended the course, but um, so I'm hoping that more and more people will engage with those machines. But I guess the danger is then that, that they then expect more of themselves than we're realistically asking in terms of starting to measure the size of the left ventricle and making decisions about all that kind of stuff and, and needing to have the expertise, I guess, to do that. I mean, it's... Um, it, it's, it's a difficult area and it's controversial amongst cardiologists, I think, whether we should be promoting people having a go at, yeah. uh, at, at doing echoes, but why would you ignore such an invaluable piece of equipment yeah. if a bit of time and practice can help you to get the left atrium and that's still the most valuable piece of, of clinical data you can use. But um, it, it's difficult to explain the, the degree of difficulty between um, assessing the left ventricle and assessing the left atrium. Yeah. I mean, Rosie Payne, for example, with her uh, study looking at cats in rehoming centres, we spent the first two years of her PhD just training her to echo. Yeah, so exactly. that was uh, that's that's how much expertise is needed Probably to assess seven hundred. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good experience, isn't it? All right, excellent. And my last question for you was, and I, I realise this is a bit of a weird question in a way, but um, in terms of cats with heart disease, um, do we have any idea in terms of whether, so say they die either because of euthanasia or naturally, um, heart failure? So acute fulminant heart failure versus thromboembolic complication versus 
infarct. Any idea? So we were talking before about cats that might just drop dead. Do we have any sense of what the biggest reason for a cat with heart disease dying is? Um, I, I think, as I say, we're underestimating the prevalence of sudden death. Mm-hmm. Uh, pr- there are more cats that die of congestive heart failure than thromboembolism. Um, Kieran Bourget, who's uh, our third-year resident here at the moment, has uh, just uh, had a paper come out in, in JVIM on prevalence in first opinion practices. And uh, it looks like the prevalence of aortic thromboembolism in first opinion practices over an eight-year period was around 0.3% of okay. all their cats, okay. which is a substantial number, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's a horrible condition, isn't it? I mean, we'll, we'll come back, hopefully, and talk mm. about it in, in a mm. lot more detail. Mm. Um, so, look, excellent. I think that's kind of all that we've got time for um, today. And as I say... Um, I'm going to get you to come back because there's quite a lot of things that we need to talk about still. Um, is there anything else you wanted to just kind of say about feline cardiomyopathy or do you feel like we've covered everything? I, mean, I, I would emphasise, rather than worrying about who's affected, picking out the high-risk cats because they're the ones that are likely to cause you grief following you anaesthetizing them for something else or giving them IV fluids for something else. And I think um, forewarned is forearmed with these cats. Um, We can very often they'll be completely stable at home and then we do something to them and push them into heart failure. And uh, for many of these cats, they may have had a murmur picked up sometime in the past. Sometimes their murmur goes away and we think that means everything's fine, mm. but actually it can mean their left ventricular function has deteriorated and they're now uh, go at developing systolic dysfunction. So sometimes the cats I'm most worried about are the ones whose murmur has gone away. Um, actually, I think that whole question about <coughs> the high-risk thing, there's something else that we can talk about in the future because <laughs> we just had a cat that came in as a first opinion emergency um, a couple of days ago that had had a traumatic episode and auscultation. The cat did have a, a loud murmur. And it was mildly hyperperfused, and we had to sort of chat about, you know, how much fluids to give it and how we were going to sedate it and all that kind of stuff. And it was very much, the plan was very much changed, and the cat did have an echo and all that kind of stuff. So it very much changed how we managed that patient yeah, yeah. based on the finding of that murmur. It was 17 years old, it was on no meds, the owner reported nothing suspicious of cardiac disease from his point of view but it did kind of change and again teasing out all of that stuff i think is all is all really interesting but we'll go on forever if i don't I know, stop we could. <laughs> we could quite easily <laughs> okay look great that's that's fantastic and um so to the listeners as always do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback and if you've got any questions um uh, that i'm not going to ask virginia in the future um then do feel free to to, to uh, send them to me and i will go and ask her for you um so you can email me directly at sjasani at rbc.ac.uk you can use the royal veterinary college's facebook page and there is a photo album there which has the links to all the podcasts um, or you can tweet us at royal vet college using the hashtag saclinpod and until next time then do take care of yourselves bye bye <laughs>